You're listening to the Point Reyes National Seashore Natural Laboratory podcast, located on Tamal Huyi, the lands of the Coast Miwok. I'm Theodora Motz with Point Reyes National Seashore Association, nonprofit partner to the National Park Service. Today, we'll be talking about black abalone. I'm going to be honest. If you had asked me what black abalone were even a few months ago, I wouldn't have known. I'd never heard of them. But the more people I talk to for this podcast and also outside of it, the more I learned that abalone are a huge part of California's coastline identity. Even my grandparents had a story about seeing people dive for abalone on summer vacations down from Oregon. And the fact that I'd never heard of them, even though I've spent plenty of time up and down the California coast, is part of the sad story of their disappearance from it. Black abalone are a species of marine snail that live off the coasts of California and Baja California in Mexico. California abalone are all relatively large for marine snails, and black abalone can reach up to 8 inches in length. They have a single, oval-shaped shell that hides their soft bodies from battering waves, and predators. This shell is dark on the outside, blending in with surrounding rocks. But the inside is part of what makes abalone special. The inside of the shell is this iridescent mother of pearl, with these dancing colors that would make stained glass windows jealous. I should know, I'm also a church chorister. That shell has been used by humans for millennia in items like jewelry, regalia, and even as a form of currency. While the abalone are alive, That shimmering interior is kept hidden, and only able to be admired by the abalone themselves. Their bodies are attached to it on one end and extend into a strong muscle called a foot on the other end that holds them in place on the rocks. They primarily eat kelp and are drift eaters, which means they mostly just hang out and wait for small kelp pieces to float past them, then grab them with their tentacles. If that sounds like an easy life, just wait. This is a two-part podcast about the history and science behind black abalone. They went from one of the most ubiquitous species along the Californian coast to critically endangered in just a few years. In this first episode, I'll tell the story of exactly how and why that happened. In the second episode, we'll learn more about how hard people are working to restore them and why so many people care about this miraculous creature. First, We'll start with the story of my only encounter with abalone so far. Whoa! What's that? Probably a red abalone. (gasps) Oh my gosh! Old shell, very old shell. That's stunning. It's like got these pink and aquamarine swirls all over it. This past December, I got to go on some field days with Nate Fletcher, a research specialist from the University of California, Santa Cruz. We went to monitor for black abalone in the areas where they primarily live, called the intertidal zone. The intertidal zone is the area where the ocean meets the land between high and low tides. It's what causes the tide pools to form that people love exploring. Conducting research in the intertidal zone is hard work. We had to climb down a cliff with poison oak, tiptoe around some lounging seals, watch out for sneaker waves that could drag us out to sea. 
Oh my god! Yikes! And make sure we got all our work done before the sun set and the tide came back in. And we had to do all of that while scrambling over slippery, sharp rocks. I'm proud to say I only fell once. After two days of this intense fieldwork, the only evidence of abalone we could find were that gorgeous red abalone shell and two live black abalone. Red abalone have also been overharvested historically, but they are not endangered, unlike black abalone. I feel lucky I got to see any black abalone at all, and they were a lot more striking than I expected. Way, way back there, like the other side of the rock, but then I gotta get down low. And my light's on it, way back there. See the blue shell? Oh, wow, it's really blue. Yeah. Whoa. Shelly, <laughs> covered in barnacles. Covered in barnacles. Barnacles. But that blue. Oops. So. That blue is so vivid. Yeah, it is, huh? It's like a beautiful, especially with the flashlight yeah. shining on it. That's nice, thanks. Second, that's our second abalone. The second of two. <laughs> second of two. Nate has been coming to this site for over two years to monitor them as well as to check in on another black abalone project that I'll talk more about later. But first, let's find out about the history of black abalone in California, and why so many researchers are venturing into dangerous intertidal zones to look for them. We have found in the fossil record that um, abalone in that region existed uh, 70 million years ago. Um, So they have been in the system for a very long time, That's Steve Whitaker, a marine ecologist working at Channel Islands National Park off the coast of Southern California. He's been studying and monitoring black abalone at the Channel Islands since 2009. Channel Islands uh, monitors and has been monitoring black abalone populations since 1982. Um, And at that point, that's when abalone populations were what's considered to be unnaturally high um, due to the lack of predation from sea otters. It was interesting hearing Steve share this history. It sounded similar to what I read in Anne Valices's book, Abalone, The Remarkable History and Uncertain Future of California's Iconic Shellfish. In this book, she describes how the abundances of all seven abalone species at California's coast are incredibly tied to human history. For example, the reason that Steve mentions a lack of predation from sea otters is because sea otters in Southern California were hunted to local extinction, or extirpation, by European colonists during the 19th century fur trade. They started rebounding in the mid-20th century, but were still not nearly at the levels that they were at before. And because indigenous people were forced off their lands, and silenced by the hierarchy of knowledge that colonialism upholds, their traditional knowledge of abalone prevalence was ignored, so early colonizers incorrectly assumed that the overabundance of abalone was natural. Kitty, my name is Hilary Rennick. I am Northern Pomo from Noyo River Indian Community, Sherwood Valley Rancheria, Hopland, Chanel, and uh, Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone tribes. Hilary and I shared a long conversation about abalone and also about the violence that European colonizers inflicted on her ancestors, as well as the continued harm caused by many non indigenous researchers, historians, and California coastal visitors. It made me realize my own role in this oppressive system, since my initial goals were extractive by reaching out to learn about her traditional ecological knowledge of black abalone. 
So it's super interesting how folks, and I'm generalizing, of course, but, you know, want to know stories that make them feel good, but yet don't want to see us on the landscape when we're there. And then when we're with our families, they still think of us as outsiders. I think it's important to include this before we go more into the shared history between abalone and indigenous nations, because to leave it out might suggest that indigenous perspectives and presences are only relevant when we look at the past, when in fact, indigenous folks like Hillary continue to be stewards, educators, and advocates for this land and all its inhabitants. Their millennia of history on their land continues through to this day. Looking back through those millennia, 13,000 years ago is when we first see evidence of people utilizing abalone as a food source, through human-created piles of shells. Then, 6,000 years ago, abalone shell fragments became more common in the archaeological record, suggesting that indigenous coastal Californians were increasingly using these shells for cultural purposes, like tools, regalia, and currencies. It was only because of our traditional food, of which abalone is a part of, and then also trading our, our goods, our um, abalone, from, you know, making it into regalia, making it into our Indian money and trading it with, you know, in, throughout Indian country, uh, were we able to even still exist to today. So the importance of abalone is, to us, is it's one of our, you know, keystone species. The breadth and scope of how important our species were on the California coast has a far-reaching, you know, um, aspect there. Plus, we also used it as currency. So even though my family resisted encroachment, resisted removal, and were poor, right, poor as in, you know, society's terms, but we had our food, and we had the food that would nourish us. And so these foods are still so important to who we are identity-wise. Um, you know, I'll wear my abalone necklaces out when I visit other tribes, and that they immediately identify me as a California Indian. Then, in the 1700s, the Spanish colonists arrived and started what became a centuries-long genocide of indigenous people. At first, white people largely ignored abalone and did not like the taste of its meat. Then, in the mid-1800s during the gold rush, Chinese immigrants recognized abalone as one of their delicacies from China. When I asked my mom, who is a Chinese immigrant herself, about this, she said that abalone was always considered a rare delicacy in China, and its name in Mandarin, baoyu, rhymes with wealth. So Chinese, and later Japanese fishermen, began collecting millions of abalone and shipped them to China and Japan. These fisheries were eventually regulated, though those regulations were more motivated by racism than by concern for abalone populations, and were accompanied by violence against the Asian fishermen. By the early 1900s, as the railroad brought larger numbers of visitors to California, white people realized that they could harvest abalone and present it as a delicacy, and so it quickly became a commercial enterprise once again. Black abalone began to be sorted and weighed separately in 1950, and peaked at around 2 million pounds harvested in the early 1970s. Because of the significant overharvesting, black abalone numbers decreased alarmingly through the 70s. 
Increased regulations put more and more pressures on commercial harvesters, which helped protect the black abalone that flourished on the Channel Islands in the 80s. The commercial black abalone fishery was finally closed in 1993, although illegal poaching of black abalone continues to pose a threat to the species. But the most dangerous threat to black abalone was yet to come. As Steve mentioned, as late as the 1980s, this iconic intertidal species still dominated the intertidal zone in the Channel Islands and other areas along the Southern California coast. Things started to change in the mid to late 80s. The culprit? A disease called withering syndrome. This was, uh, was and still is caused by uh, a bacterium that um, infects the gastrointestinal lining of, of the black abalone itself. And what that does as a result is make it nearly impossible for these animals to digest um, nutrients. And so they're essentially starving um, due to this bacterium that has infected their, their stomach lining. And um, as a result of that, uh, they lose strength in their foot and they're unable to hold on to the rock um, tightly. And so uh, they are then either preyed upon by something um, or they just simply fall off of the rock and they're unable to reattach and they just get thrown up onto the shoreline and, and, and they starve. It's, it's actually a terrible way to die. Uh, if you think about it. Withering syndrome is caused by a bacterium whose name is long and Latin, but I heard researchers describe it as a rickettsia-like bacteria, which is the name of the order it belongs to in taxonomic classification. So for simplicity's sake, I'll call it rickettsia from now on. Researchers think that an El Nino event in 1983 carried the rickettsia to Southern California waters. El Ninos are cyclical climate patterns that bring warmer surface water temperatures to the eastern Pacific Ocean. The 1983 El Nino was the strongest ever recorded at the time and brought extremely high water temperatures off the Southern California coast. This bacteria, which is associated with higher water temperatures, obliterated abalone populations in Southern California, where they are the most populous. It wiped out 99% of black abalone at the Channel Islands alone. We had abalone uh, literally stacked on top of each other four and five deep um, in the cracks and crevices. And they were um, probably the most, one of the most dominant organisms that you would find um, as you're walking around. And you really have to be careful to watch your, your step because they, they covered uh, most of the habitat. Three decades later, Nate and I scrambled around searching high and low to find even one new black abalone. This is like a good yoga for you. Yeah, right? Nate's like bending at all different angles looking for these abalones, these yeah, black abalones. Like it's a little bit like a game of Where's Waldo. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nothing? It's devastating that something that was once so common has become so difficult to find. While researchers at the Channel Islands, led by Dr. Mia Tegner, scrambled to figure out what was happening with black abalone in the 90s, they realized that no one had seen a different abalone species, white abalone, for a long time either. Overharvesting by humans eventually led white abalone to be the first marine invertebrate, 
which is an animal without a backbone, added to the endangered species list in 2001, with black abalone following them onto the list in 2009. I should say right away that just because they don't have a physical backbone doesn't mean they don't have grit. Black abalone have survived everything from predation by otters and octopus, to over-harvesting by humans, to living in the brutal environment of the intertidal zone. That's part of what made it so alarming to researchers that they died off so horribly from withering syndrome. We've since learned a lot about withering syndrome, but also have a long way to go. One of the ways researchers are trying to learn more is through the project that Nate and I were monitoring in the intertidal zone. Nate ventures out there a few times a year to see if there are any baby black abalone that have moved into researcher-designed abalone condos. The abalone condos, formerly called recruitment modules, are stacks of four limestone plates, each one six by six inches, with spacers creating a quarter inch of space between them. A collaborative research unit installed these modules in 2019 to try to better detect black abalone recruitment and understand the factors impacting black abalone recovery. The idea is if researchers find large numbers of baby black abalone that are being recruited to live in the modules, that might suggest that a big issue for black abalone is a lack of good habitat for juveniles to settle on. And this makes sense. A lot of the intertidal zone I saw on my field days was covered with a very common shellfish, mussels, with no room for anything else. Adult black abalone typically maintain suitable habitat for juveniles by grazing in cracks and crevices around rocks. They don't tend to move much, but if there's enough of them, they can keep the surrounding habitat clear enough for the young to settle on. As a result, when the number of adults declines, other organisms fill in those habitats and limit the space for juvenile black abalone. Sadly, there has not been much success with the modules. Across all sites in the study, only one baby black abalone has ever been found in them. What this suggests is that instead of poor habitat, it might be that there isn't enough reproduction happening with such low densities of adult abalone. Even the two black abalone that I saw in my field days, which were and will likely stay just five meters apart, are considered too far apart to meet the critical threshold for successful reproduction. So it looks like not quite a love story going yeah, on. Yeah, not quite, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> Part of the difficulty is that black abalone are broadcast spawners. This means that instead of directly mating, Males release sperm and females release eggs into the water, where they meet and lead to fertilization. Here's Pete Raimondi, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz, describing the process. We think that the, the individuals need to be within a meter of one another, the male and the female, in order for there to be successful fertilization because the sperm has to find the egg. And, um, and so the more individuals that are spawning, the more higher the likelihood there is going to be fertilization. And so that's one of the reasons why having larger populations is important. That is called the Ali effect, which says that not just the number, but the density of adults is important for reproductive success. It takes two to tango, but they have to be close enough to dance. Black abalone are the only species of abalone in California that have yet to be successfully spawned in a lab. It's unknown exactly why it's been so difficult, but I wouldn't be surprised if the same factors that help them survive in the intertidal zone also make them even more difficult to understand in a lab setting. Unlike other abalone species that live in deeper waters, black abalone are used to dramatic environment changes in the intertidal zone. 
So some of the tricks researchers use to get other abalone species to release their eggs and sperm, like temperature changes, don't work as well on black abalone. Researchers are working on it, because if we can grow juvenile black abalone in a lab, we can release those back into the wild where populations have been depleted. But that doesn't mean that the black abalone are doomed until we can work magic in the lab. It's just one of the many ways people are working hard in response to the horrible effects withering syndrome has had on black abalone populations. We're ending this episode at the largest historical crisis point for black abalone, but their story isn't over yet. Tune in to our second episode in this two-part series to learn about what happened next and how researchers from several organizations are working hard to restore them to the California coast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Natural Laboratory from Point Reyes National Seashore. This episode was created by me, Theodora Motz. Many thanks to Mark Lippman for the ambient intertidal zone recordings, and to James Wetzel and the Scola Cantorum of St. Vincent Ferrer Catholic Church in New York City for the choral music, which, by the way, included my voice. Thanks also to the Black Abalone experts who shared their knowledge with me, to Mary Helen Sherman for her invaluable guidance, and to the Point Reyes National Seashore Association and the National Park Service for their support. And finally, thank you to the Black Abalone for sharing their existence with all of us.